Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you so much. Hey, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Uh, I know that there's a lot of places you could have been, so the fact that you showed up here with us is a big deal. Thanks for doing that. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Andrew, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Frontline. Um, So a few weeks ago, I was traveling to help my friend. My friend's an atheist and a guy that I've known for years that I, I've been trying to walk with him, and he's asking questions about Jesus from time to time and trying to help him with some of that, and just a, just a good friend of mine. And he's moving, and it's a Saturday morning, so I'm giving up my Saturday morning to go help this guy move. I jump in my minivan, and I'm driving down the road. I'm running late, so I don't realize how fast I'm going, and you can't really go too fast in a minivan anyway. And so uh, driving along, and all of a sudden, I see lights police officer lights, and I realize, oh my goodness, I'm getting pulled over. In a minivan, I'm getting pulled over, uh, and I can't think of the last time I've, I've been pulled over. This is weird, and so I, I pull over, and I start to realize that what just happened is I went through a speed trap. I was going five miles over, and I crossed over uh, Shields on 27th, if you know what I'm talking about, and it goes from, I go from being five over to being 15 over like that, and uh, he pulls me over, and and, and, I, and I'm starting to get angry. I can just sense in my, like, are you kidding me? This is happening. I'm going to help my non-Christian friend move on a Saturday morning, and I'm trying to do something, you know, so I'm starting to, like, feel some anger rise up in my heart. And then he, you know, lessens the blow, so he thinks by saying, well, you know, you were going 15 over, but I'm going to write you for 10 over. That way it doesn't go on your record. And, oh, how kind of you. Thank you for doing that. Um, and I sense in my heart this need to be sarcastic and to be a little bit short, and thankfully I don't, but as, I'm dry, a, a, as I you know, get the ticket and I kind of pull away from that moment, in my heart I'm like, that's ridiculous to me. I'm a pastor in a church. I, I love Jesus. I don't remember the last time I've, I've done anything illegal. I'm going to help my non-Christian. Like there's someone in our city stabbing another human being right now and I'm getting a ticket. How, how is this possible that this is happening to me? I'm not that bad, right? Now, here's why I bring this up. 
that sense of, you know, standing before the judge and me saying that, uh, I'm not that bad and there are worse people out there, is in many ways kind of the general cultural feel of people in Oklahoma, right? People in Oklahoma, I'm not that bad. There are people out there way worse than me that have broken the law and done all kinds of craziness. I'm just not that bad. By the way, I hope you like that analogy because it cost me $95 to give that to you. So you're welcome for that analogy. Um, Here's what's interesting. If you think about the, the way people in Oklahoma view Christianity and view Christians and kind of view what it is to have a relationship with Jesus, it's really built on this idea that there is a God somewhere out there. Obviously, there are people that are atheists or agnostics that don't believe that. Um, and if you're one of them, man, we're so glad you're with us. All the questions you have, they're not, they're not weird, and we want to we try to help you with those questions. Um, but most people in Oklahoma really do believe that there is a God. And they believe that they are legitimately fairly good people. And that, yeah, we believe in Jesus, and he, I'm sure he helps us, and he died for us, and that's great. But, but it's really, I've got some goodness to bring to the table, too. In fact, sociologist, sociologist Christian Smith uh, wrote a book years ago where he, he unpacked this idea of what I want to call kind of the religion of Oklahoma and the land of the Bible Belt called moralistic therapeutic deism. There's just five tenets, and if you've, if you've ever, you know, if you, if you know me well, then you know that this is something that I talk about and think about a lot because this is Oklahoma. Let me give you these five tenets of moralistic therapeutic deism. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Most people in Oklahoma believe that. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible, and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Something hits the fan, life goes crazy, you might throw a prayer God's way. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. If you could distill down the common belief system in Oklahoma, I think it's those five things, moralistic, therapeutic, deism. And, and I just want to say that this is what I grew up thinking Christianity was all about, and I grew up in the church. And I would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus and I love Jesus, but you know, he doesn't need to really be particularly involved in my life and really my goal is just to do good and be good and try not to get in too much trouble between now and the time that I die. And the reason why this is something that I wanna bring up as we jump into Philippians 3 is that moralistic therapeutic deism or anything that kind of feels like that couldn't be further from the essence and reality of Christianity. It just couldn't be further. And maybe you're here and you've actually rejected Christianity, and, and it's possible that if you've rejected Christianity, that what you've rejected is your assumptions based on the people in your life and the interactions that you have of what you think Christianity is, but you've never come face-to-face with real, true Christianity. It's possible in Oklahoma. And it's also possible, and maybe this is more of you, to kind of claim to be a Christian, to say that you're a follower of Jesus, but your belief system lines up with moralistic therapeutic deism more than it does with the essence and heart of what Christianity really is. And Philippians 3, Paul does one of the best jobs in anywhere in the New Testament to distill down for us the difference between man-centered religion and real Christianity. And I think this is one of the most helpful things that you can hear in the land of the Bible Belt to really wrestle with where are you at 
with who Jesus really is and why he really came and what Christianity really is about. So without further ado, let's jump in. Look at chapter three, verse one. Finally, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now he's about to give us a warning. Look out for the dogs. And when you see that, don't think of your cute puppy at home. You know, don't think of your pet. First century dogs are not pets, right? They're not creatures that you bring home. They're filthy animals that roam the streets and eat trash and carry diseases. So uh, dogs in the first century is not a compliment. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, it's important just to pause here that in in Jewish tradition, this is kind of going back to the first century and before, uh, the way that Jewish people looked at non-Jewish people, Gentiles, uh, really were three ways. They would call them dogs. They would call them evildoers because they were pagan worshipers. And they would say that they are the ones that mutilate the flesh because they're worshiping all these other gods and they're cutting themselves and bleeding out for all these other gods. So one of the ways that a Jewish man or woman would kind of belittle non-Jewish people is by saying, yeah, they're do- those Gentiles, they're just dogs. They're evildoers. They don't care about the, the law of God. And they mutilate their flesh. But Paul's actually not talking about pagans. He's, he's talking about someone else. He goes on to say this in verse three, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Who is Paul talking about? The, the, the key kind of statement that brings us to a realization of who Paul is talking about is that phrase, for we are the circumcision. Now if you're new to church, like why are we talking about circumcision in church? This is getting weird. Well here's why. Because the people that Paul is warning the Christians in Philippi about, it's a group of people known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers. Who who are they? Uh, These are people inside of the early church that actually would call themselves Christians. They believed in Jesus. They believed that he lived a perfect life. They believed that he died on the cross. They believed that Jesus rose from the dead. These are people that if you asked them, are you a Christian, they would say, yes, I'm a Christian. But... There are also people that have taken the gospel and twisted it to say something that the gospel really isn't about. Because what the Judaizers believe is that in order to be really loved by God, in order to be adopted into the family of God, to be the true people of God, what you have to do is not just believe in Jesus, but you've got to become Jewish. So you had all these Gentile people coming to know Jesus, all these non-Jews becoming Christians, and the Judaizers were kind of following Paul around from place to place and from city to city, and they were entering these towns and these cities, and they were saying, hey, Paul told you the truth, but he left out some stuff. If you really want God to love you and accept you, you've got to get circumcised. Right now, we kind of think that baptism is hard enough to get people to do. All right, imagine baptism and, oh, by the way, we need to do a little surgery after service if that's okay with you. I mean, this is crazy. And, and then it's, oh, you've got to eat these dietary laws and restrictions and you've got to follow the Jewish uh, cleansing laws and all these other things. So it's not just Jesus. Jesus is important. Jesus matters. But it's Jesus plus some other stuff, right? If you kind of painted out what they believe into a math equation, it would look like this. Jesus plus obedience to the law equals salvation. So yeah, Jesus is important, but you also need to become Jewish people. Now, it's, it, it's hard to articulate to you how much Paul hates this teaching. He hates it. 
he's warning these Christians in Philippi about this teaching, even though we have no historical evidence that the Judaizers ever even made it to Philippi or there in this moment. And yet still, it's like he's, he's almost got like, like gospel PTSD. And he's like, no, just in case they show up, you've gotta know, you've gotta know these are dogs, they're evildoers. They're the ones who are just mutilating the flesh. They think they're doing something holy by calling you to get circumcised. They're just mutilating the flesh. He hates their teaching. In fact, he hates their teaching so much that in Galatians, another letter that he wrote to a church in Galatia, he tells these Judaizer people very kind of sarcastically, oh, you think circumcision's gonna make you holy before God? Try cutting off the whole thing. It'll make you really holy. Just go ahead and castrate yourself. So it's like, wow, Paul does not like this teaching at all. He's very against it. So he's warning this church against this weird, twisted version of the gospel against what the Judaizers were teaching. Now let's pause here. Why is this helpful for you and me in 2018 in Oklahoma City, Moore, Norman? Why why is this helpful? Well, here's why it's helpful. Because today in our culture, we have modern day Judaizers that are kind of roaming the Bible belt. Modern day Judaizers. Now what I don't mean is people that believe that you need to believe in Jesus and get circumcised. I've never met that person. I've never been at a coffee shop and had someone walk up to me and say, hey, um, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, actually I do. I'm a a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I'm actually a pastor. I love love Jesus. Oh, great. Okay, one more question. Have you been circumcised? You know, like I've not had that person come up to me. They may be out there somewhere, but it hasn't happened. Here's what we have. It's not that type of a Judaizer that's alive and well today, but we have what I just want to call modern-day Judaizers. And it's really man-centered religion when you boil it down. What's the equation of man-centered religion? Well, it goes like this. Jesus plus fill-in-the-blank equals salvation. It's Jesus plus you got to do a few things. It's Jesus plus you've got to get rid of that addiction. It's Jesus plus you've got to, you know, try harder and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and yet yet Jesus matters you need to believe in Jesus but it's not just Jesus that matters it's Jesus plus some other stuff if you really want God to love you then it's Jesus plus that other stuff now you may not think that that's in you but this is actually in you in ways that you may not even realize it's in me some of you walked in today and you're having a hard time as we're singing because you're trying to sing along, but then you realize like, man, your life is not really matching up with the songs that you're singing. And you just feel disconnected and you almost feel like, you know, God is probably looking down on me with shame and with anger and frustration because I've just not done well. And all of a sudden what's happened is you've started to lose confidence in Jesus and your confidence in your own ability to be moral and to be righteous and to keep the rules and to make God happy is what you're starting to trust in. And before you know it, even those of us who believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, start to slip into this weird legalism. We're becoming modern day Judaizers in our heart. Maybe you're taught this growing up. Yeah, it's Jesus plus, you better clean up your act because that's the only way he's really gonna love you. I think a lot of us have heard this man-centered religion say something like, I obey God, therefore I'm loved and accepted by God. 
I obey. That's why he loves me. That's why he accepts me. I'm, I try hard, and I, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I, I do the right stuff, and that's why he, he loves me. And when I, when I fail, man, I just, I don't know. That's the thing about man-centered religion, isn't it? It's like, if you are killing it, then you just picture God with a giant smile on his face. <laughs> you, 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 read, you, wake, you actually wake up in the morning and read your Bible before you look at your phone, and you go to work, and you're like, it's gonna be a good day because God loves it. Like, and you kind of feel good, you know? Uh, or you have a really good stretch with, where you fought that particular sin that is clawing at your door all the time, and you fought it, and you fought it. You've said no to temptation, it's going to be a good day. God loves me. And then you fail. You do something that embarrasses you. You do something that you thought, man, I thought I was past this by now. I thought I'd grown out of this addiction. I thought I'd matured beyond the ability to struggle with this. And you're crushed because your foundation for God's love and acceptance of you is you. And Paul wants to warn you about this. This is a big deal. So back to Paul. He's saying, this is this is scary stuff, and I just want to tell you, like, you got to look out for those dogs of man-centered religion. You got to look out for those evildoers. They're twisting the truth of the gospel. Now, let, let's ask this question. Is Paul doing this and saying this because Paul knows himself that his life is a train wreck, and he actually can't be moral, and so he's got vested interest in being against man-centered religion? Is that why Paul is just anti uh, man-centered religion and the teaching of the Judaizers because he's a morally troubled person that can't keep his stuff together? No, that's not at all who Paul is. Look, look at what he says. He goes on to say this in verse three. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And I love this. He's about to brag. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, hey, Judaizers, you think that you have reason to boast in your Jewishness? Get ready, because I'm about to one-up you on every level. I've got more confidence than you in my flesh. Verse five, circumcised on the eighth day. That's a, a big deal in the, in the law in the Old Testament. All Jewish males were supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. Some that was happening later in life, Paul is saying, yeah, I did it when I was supposed to. Eighth day, check. Of the people of Israel, so I'm not some Gentile convert, I'm actually a descendant of Abraham. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Here's why he brings that up, it's a big deal. The tribe of Benjamin in the first century was the only tribe out of the 12 that could trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. None of the other tribes could do it. So being of the tribe of Benjamin had this special honor to it because they actually had data, historical record of, yeah, my dad, it was his dad, and his dad. Yeah, Abraham's my grandpa. I can prove it. I'm the tribe of Benjamin. You can't even prove that. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Then he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. What does that mean? A Pharisee? Well, here, here's the thing. If you grew up in church, you know that those are the bad guys, but I wish I could like men in black just and make you forget that for just a second because in the first century, the Pharisees were considered the good guys. They were considered the righteous guys. If you were in church in the first century, you wanted to grow up to be like a Pharisee. They kept the rules. They were serious. They were devoted. And he says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. He was studying under Gamaliel, who is one of the, the leading Jewish 
uh, rabbis of his day, Paul himself was almost this just star in waiting. He was a rising to uh, just Jewish power like you wouldn't believe. He was known as one of the most serious, devout, intellectual, gifted leaders that was rising to the surface. He says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. What he means by that is he was so serious about Judaism that when this weird, crazy sect of Christianity started to rise to the surface, he did everything in his power to snuff it out, even to the point of, of helping put to death the first church leader, Stephen, a deacon in the early church. He hated the spread of Christianity. He hated Jesus. As to righteousness under the law, and I love this, blameless. What is he saying? If you look at the Old Testament, there are over 600 laws in the Old Testament. And what Paul is saying is if you lay my life down over the law, all these 600 laws, you know what I am? I'm blameless. I work hard at this. I keep these rules. So here's what Paul is saying. I'm more Jewish than you. I'm better than you. I was more devoted than you. I had more stuff going for me. I mean, Paul is wealthy and intellectual and gifted. This is his identity. He has every reason in himself internally to look at himself and and feel good about his own morality and righteousness when he stands before God. I've killed it. I've done all the things. This is what Paul is saying. Now look at what Paul goes on to say And this, this is shocking, what he goes on to say in verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. If you're an accountant out there, we've got accountants in our church, maybe you've studied uh, to be an accountant in school, God bless you, I don't know why you would ever do such a thing, but so glad that people like you exist then you study profit and loss as your job. Profit and loss is kind of the air that you breathe. And what he's using is an, an, an accounting metaphor. He's saying, all the things that were a profit to me, now all of those things have shifted over to the loss column. All of these things. Whatever gain I had, my Jewishness, my wealth, my intellectual spirit, all this identity that I had as this Pharisee, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What happened to Paul? How does Paul going from someone that had so much going for him in the profit column, in the gain column, and now he's looking at it all and he's saying, yeah, because of Jesus, it's all loss. I count it as a loss. It's nothing but loss to me. And then he he uses this word rubbish. It's rubbish. Everything, not just his righteousness. Paul says everything in my life is rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, I don't want to like dog on our English translation because it's really good and it's it's really helpful, Um, but there are just certain words that do not translate over from Hebrew or Greek into the English language. And this is one of those words that you really need to know some backstory on it because the word rubbish doesn't do it justice. It's like you think of some posh British person 
And you go, yeah, like that, that's not what's being described when he says this word. When he uses this word uh, in Greek, it looks like this, skubalon. Maybe just say that for a minute, skubalon. Feels good, doesn't it, to say skubalon. Um, this is the closest thing that we have in the Bible to an expletive. It's not quite there, but I probably couldn't say the English equivalent in church or else I'd get the scubalon kicked out of me, right? Thank you for laughing at that. It was a good joke. The 9 a.m., they, they didn't think it was that funny. So let me, let me paint this picture. It's, it's, um, it really means excrement, but let's paint it uh, out a little bit so that you can understand. The Romans had a really highly developed sewage system that was in place before the first century, but by the time the first century rolled around, it was really, really highly, highly developed. So uh, here's what would happen. You would essentially go to a communal toilet, and you would do your business. So uh, how many of you, don't raise your hand because that's embarrassing, but if you, get, if you get stage fright now in today's toilet culture, like this would be your worst nightmare. You would never go to the bathroom, right? So this is, you know, you sit down next to all your friends and check in on their day and how, how you doing and you do your business and I mean how bizarre right and this this is happening and uh, after you do your business it runs down into this underground sewage system that that actually goes underneath the city flows underneath the city so that you don't have to smell it if you're walking around in the city flows out all the way out of the city past oftentimes what they would call the dung gate that's a real thing the dung gate every city would have a dung gate and it would be there collected into kind of this area that was away from the crowds and away from the people. And you can just imagine the filth and the stench and the grossness of that. That is scubalon. That's where the word comes from. It's scubalon. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying all that identity that I used to have and all of that righteousness that I used to have, and all the stuff that I used to walk in, and all the stuff about me, my intellect and my money and my pride, and all the rule-keeping and my Jewish ethnicity, it's all scubalon, because I get to just know Jesus now. I get to know Jesus. That is amazing. Is your identity that you used to have, your money, your status, your morality, the stuff in your life that was going for you prior to Jesus, do you count that as scubalon compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? What happened to Paul? Don't you want to know? How does he go from being that guy who's like basically a, a passionate ISIS terrorist to being who he is today? How does that happen? Well, you know the story, at least some of you do. Let me just tell you if you don't. Paul is on his way to persecute more Christians. He's in Jerusalem and he's headed to Damascus. He's on the road to Damascus, ready to throw more Christians in prison. And listen, he wants nothing to do with Jesus. He hates Jesus. He's against Jesus. He's been fighting Jesus. And you would just think that if Jesus shows up to this guy, of all people, Jesus is not going to be very happy. Jesus is gonna bring this crushing weight of conviction. Jesus is going to destroy Paul because Paul's an enemy of the church. Jesus probably hates guys like this. There's nothing about this guy that deserves to be loved by Jesus. And yet he's on the road. And while on the road to kill more Christians, Jesus shows up. And instead of crushing Paul, he loves Paul. And instead of condemning Paul, he not only forgives Paul, but invites Paul to become a part of his 
kingdom work. You see, the types of people that God loves the most are not the people that feel like they've got all this stuff in the prophet column and and that's why God should love them. The types of people that God loves and moves towards are the ones that don't have anything left to hope in. The broken and the bankrupt and the spiritually dry and the ones that can't seem to get their life in order and actually need an outside rescue to come in and help. This is who Paul is. In fact, in his own words in Galatians 1, listen to how he says it, just the the sheer joy and the shock in his voice. He says, for you've heard about my former way of life in Judaism, how I intensely persecuted God's church and I tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. And I love this. But... God. It wasn't something Paul thought. It wasn't in his own imagination. It wasn't, but God did something. What did he do? From my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace. He was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. He had an encounter with Jesus in the middle of his antagonism and disbelief and anger and hardness of heart and all these other things where he doesn't even see his need for a savior. He has such an encounter with the grace of Jesus that it changes Paul. And all the stuff that happens that he considers to be gains, they quickly shift over to the lost column. And he says, yeah, all of that, that's scubalon. And everything else in my life is scubalon compared to knowing Jesus. So that's what happens when grace collides into the heart of a human being. It changes you from the inside out. And you just start to desire and want Jesus in intimate, deep ways. So what happened with Paul? Well, three things coming out of this happened to Paul. The first is that he counted everything as loss. Everything as loss. That, that word loss is interesting. It's used three times, uh, I'm sorry, four times in the entire New Testament, that word, only four times. Three of the times it's used here in Philippians chapter three. Three times in this text, loss, loss, loss. It's only used one other time, and that's in Acts 27. The word loss is used again, and this is in in the context of Paul being on a ship, and they've got all this cargo on the ship, and they're headed to a port city, and Paul's actually a prisoner on the ship at this point, and the ship gets shipwrecked, and all of a sudden they have to jettison the cargo to survive and keep the ship from sinking. So they have to make this decision. Either we can maintain the cargo and the ship will sink or we can take the cargo and throw it overboard and maybe the ship won't sink, we'll survive. So that word jettison or loss is used of the cargo. The cargo had to become a loss so that they could be rescued so that they wouldn't sink. And, and here's the picture that Paul is trying to paint in this text. He's trying to say, your righteousness and your identity outside of Jesus and all this other morality and all the other things that you used to hope in, you have to jettison those. You've got to throw those overboard if you don't want to sink and only cling to Jesus, only have righteousness that comes through faith in him. It's not your own righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus who lived perfectly and died in your place and rose again, where you actually, you take your own righteousness and all these other other identities and you throw them overboard to just hang on to Jesus. That's what he's saying. Just like that word picture 
of Scubalon. He's saying that your righteousness, your morality, your other identities before Jesus rescued you, they've got to flow out of the city and get out there in the dung gate. You've got to count those as Scubalon compared to Jesus. They've got to be away from you. You've, you only hope in him. Nothing else. Nothing else. Just Jesus. That's what happened to Paul. He counted everything as loss. Number two, the second thing that happened to Paul is he started to see himself as a sinner in need of being rescued. This is interesting, isn't it? Because Paul never before in his life saw himself as a sinner in need of a rescue. He thought of himself as a pretty good guy. And yet after meeting Jesus, he says things like this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then look at this. Of whom... I am the foremost. That humility that he has is produced by the reality of the gospel. You know, I didn't have anything to hope in anyway. All my other identity, my intellect, my Jewishness, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that I was so broken and so in need and Jesus came for people like me. I'm the worst, I'm the worst, and yet Jesus came for me. And then finally, number three, Paul started to actually love and desire Jesus more than anything else. Look at this, I love this. This is uh, a few verses that I pray become the heartbeat of our church. This is my hope and my prayer for us as a church. Verse 10, that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I want to know Jesus is what Paul says. I just, I just want to know him. That's all I want. I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Like I, what I love about this is, is this is the type of heart that, that I pray starts to bleed inside of our church that, that you and I, we, we, we so throw man-centered religion away because it can't do anything for us and it doesn't create intimacy. My hope is that we throw it away in such a way that all of a sudden we become people that talk like this and feel like this, and act like this. Yeah, I just, I don't care about anything else. I just want to know Jesus. I just want to know him more, you know? I just want to know the power of his resurrection. This is what Jesus, this is what Paul has done in his life. So where do we go from here? Well, just a few things, and I'm going to bring this to a close. Number one, I want to just ask you, what things in your life are you currently putting confidence in, you're hoping in, outside of Jesus? What false identities are you holding on to? What things are you looking to and, and, and feeling like in your life? That's a confidence thing with God. I have confidence with other people and with God because of these things. Today, the invitation from Jesus is you can actually jettison all of that confidence and all of your own stuff and your own morality, your own righteousness, and cling to him. That's the invitation. Where do you need to repent today of placing confidence in your ability to keep the rules to keep God in love with you? When God is so over that, he's already loved you in Jesus at the cross and the way, he fe the way God feels about his son is the way he feels about you in Christ. Number two, I want you to see that the grace of God always leads to pure and simple devotion to Jesus. It always leads it. 
Some of you are terrified of grace because you're afraid if churches preach too much grace that people are just gonna go live and do whatever the heck they wanna do and everyone's just gonna do what's right in their own eyes. Grace never, ever leads you there. If you, in the name of grace, have been led there, then you have been led wrongly. Grace always leads to language like Paul. I just wanna know him and the power of of his resurrection. I just want to know him and make him known. That's my one goal. Number three, I want to just ask you, um, or, or mention to you rather, that, that you and I, we are called to know Jesus both in his resurrection power and, wait for it, and in his sufferings. We're called to know Jesus in his resurrection power. Do you ever think about that? I want to know Jesus and I want to know his resurrection power. What does that mean? That means like the power that raised Christ from the dead is available to you as a follower of Jesus. Paul doesn't just say, I want to know Jesus. I want to know Jesus, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. Like that should be something that you think about and talk about and pursue. And some of you hear that, you're like, know Jesus, yes. And the power of his resurrection, yes again. And share in his sufferings. Wait, what? Share in his sufferings. And even becoming like him in his death. What, death? So it's like, know Jesus, know his power, and his sufferings, and even death. See, you and I are called not just to experience resurrection power from Jesus, we're called to step in and experience the sufferings of Jesus. It's the grace of God that leads you to both places. Gordon Fee, this is too good not to share with you. Gordon Fee wrote my favorite commentary on Philippians called Paul's Letter to the Philippians. It's a really creative title. And uh, he, he said this, and I, I thought it was so helpful. I want to just pass it on to you. Paul knows nothing of the rather gloomy stoicism that is so often exhibited in historic Christianity where the lot of the believer is basically that of slugging it out in the trenches with little or no sense of Christ's presence and power. On the contrary, the power of Christ's resurrection was the greater reality for Paul. So certain was Paul that it had happened and that Christ's resurrection guaranteed his own that he could throw himself into the present with a kind of holy abandon, full of rejoicing and thanksgiving, and that not because he enjoyed suffering, but because Christ's resurrection had give him, given him a unique perspective on present, suffer, present suffering, as well as an empowering presence whereby that suffering was transformed into intimate fellowship with Christ himself. So that's what's for you. It's this power to live now in such a way that all you want is to know Jesus. You are even willing to go through suffering receiving that from the good hand of God because at the end of the day, all it does is make you want to know Jesus more. That's what you are called into as a follower of Jesus. And then finally, number four, maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and this is all foreign and today has been a weird day for you kind of moving about our day, singing the songs that we've, we've been singing, praying for people in our city who are sick, who need healing, and you're just kind of feeling weird about this whole day. What is this all about? Well, here's how I wanna just invite you. That Jesus today, he sees everything about you. He knows the deepest secrets of your heart. He knows your sin, all the stuff that you've hidden so well from others. He sees it, it's all laid out in front of him. And he loves you. He feels passionately about you. He has a heart of mercy and grace for you. And he's inviting you today to stop 
focusing and trusting in your other identities and your own morality and your goodness and your ability to keep the rules. He's saying today, you can jettison all of that. It's all a loss. It's all scubalon compared to the surpassing worth of knowing me. And today you can come and just trade your own righteousness, which isn't anything you can stand on, for the righteousness found in Jesus by faith. That's available to you today. It's by grace, and you don't have to do anything to deserve it. In fact, the only thing that makes you deserving is you're a sinner in need of it. 